So Wayne MD, I was an ordinary guy, owned a manufacturing business here in Bakersfield. He worked diligently, and he loved the Lord greatly. But June 18, 1992, was a pivotal day in his life. You see, Wayne had two older brothers. Their father, too, was a hardworking man who loved the Lord, but he failed to discipline the first two brothers. They instead chose a life of crime. Chuck and Carl, rather than working hard, chose to be professional bank robbers. Well, they weren't really good at it. They would come into a bank wielding pistols. This is a stick-up, and uh, they would take what they could. They would get caught, go to jail for a few years, and when they got out, they would revert back to the same behavior. Carl got out, started working for Wayne earlier in 1992, but decided he wasn't earning enough money. So he quit, did a bank job, and he wired the money to his other brother, Chuck, who had just broken out of a halfway house. Carl got caught. He went to jail. But Chuck knew his older brother, Wayne, was making good money. And uh, he called him, and he asked him for a Corvette and $5,000. He had a gift of painting, and so he wanted to start an art gallery. When Wayne refused, that was the last straw. So Chuck hijacked a car, knocked over somebody in an ATM, and came to Bakersfield to confront his brother, Wayne, who insisted that he work for a living. In the early hours of June 18th at Wayne's office, Chuck informed Wayne that he did not deserve to live. His warped mind believed, because Wayne had money and Chuck did not, that he was even disobeying the Bible by not caring for his brother, by giving him some of it. After giving Wayne time to write notes to his kids and getting some of his paperwork in order, Chuck sat Wayne down at his desk and shot him in the head and the heart, reloading his cap and ball gun between each of the three shots. He stated that he deserved to die. This story passed into history with very few people remembering it, even though it made headlines for weeks here in Bakersfield, until they finally caught the brother and tried him. Do you remember the names Jaden Jimenez, Daniel Madrid, or Timothy Sheldon? They died just one year ago today in Bakersfield, but they, too, passed into history with little fanfare. Sure, we remember the deaths of certain loved ones, but do we really understand how our lives are so insignificant in light of eternity? Occasionally, when we let Steve take a break and we pry this pulpit out of his hands, he asked if I would preach, and uh, I've always been drawn to the book of James. It happens about once a year. So would you turn with me, please, if you would, to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James 4, 13 to 17. I'm actually going to use another book of the Bible to make a point, make my points, but I want to use James to set this up. In previous studies, we've seen that James is actually the very first book written in the New Testament. It's been over 400 years since any prophet had spoken, since any books of the Bible were written. James, as you might recall, is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Christ. He saw the truth of his life, and he rejected it. But he, uh, during his earthly ministry, rejected. But the truth of the gospel came to James, and he became one of the most ardent supporters of Christ upon his resurrection. His eyes were opened, and he believed. James now had been the leader of the church in Jerusalem for quite some time. James writes 
this letter only 11 to 16 years after Christ's resurrection. That would be like 2005 to 2010 compared to our time right now. Just maybe when this church, when we put up the walls, the men of this church built the walls of this church. Think of this. The first documented letter to the Christians written by the actual brother of Jesus Christ. It's not a documentary. It's not a theological discourse. It is instead a practical challenge to continue in the faith. The disciples and apostles had no doubt been searching the scriptures to see now Christ being fulfilled through those Old Testament uh, prophecies, and they're seeing this come to light. Let's look at what these new believers needed to hear as an exhortation from James. Let's read James four thirteen to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James was written to Jews that were likely uh, part of the Jerusalem church at some time, at some point in the past, and now they're being scattered all throughout the area. They're taking their faith with them, and his exhortation is designed to help them to spread the gospel. The entire book of James helps them see how do they practically live out their lives in this world. There have been exhortations of perseverance through trials, warnings of the futility of riches, the handling of temptations in chapter 1. He cautions of showing favoritism, having faith without works in chapter 2, and warns to teachers, controlling the tongue, avoiding hypocrisy, and having heavenly wisdom in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, he's just spoken of avoiding the pride of pursuing things of this world and keeping from being a hypocritical judge. When we get to our passage in chapter 4, verse 13, the surface of the verse presents someone boasting about their plans. Someday your life will end. What will there be to boast about? What will be said at your funeral? What will be written on your obituary and what will be placed on your epitaph? Will it be those big plans that you fulfilled? Will there be any truly lasting value to the work of your life? Let's look at another book of the Bible that James would have read that will demonstrate this passage and make James' passage more easily understood. And Steve has occasionally preached from Ecclesiastes. What better book to look to see the purposes of life through the lens of our final days? So we're going to turn to Ecclesiastes, and I was greatly influenced to speak on this subject from a book entitled Living Life Backwards by David Gibson. I highly recommend this book. Living Life Backwards is great. Gibson says, left to our own devices, we tend to live forward in our lives. One day follows another, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years. We don't know our future, yet we live our lives with a plan, a dream, and a hope for the future. We live forward, Gibson says. He says, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backwards. It encourages us to take one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backwards from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives. And to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey, 
he says. Let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions, and our strongest desires. Well, with the scare of COVID this last year, especially with the governor warning that 5% of the population of California is going to die from it, there's a heightened awareness of death in our society. Yet, at the same time, there's a fear of talking about it. Tonight, I hope we can see that this is our end and we will return to the earth as dust. As the King James Version of James 4.14 says, we're just a vapor. I want, you, I want to do a jet tour through Ecclesiastes. So let me read the first few verses of Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of, in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, or will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after What's often been pointed out, this term vanity, is the main point of the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. But the word here used is habel. It's also translated breath or breeze. Everything is a mist, a breeze, a vapor, a puff of smoke. This is a common biblical idea. Job 7.7 says, Oh, remember that my life is a breath, habel, and as the clouds disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. Psalm 39.11 says, Surely all mankind is a mere breath, Habel. Psalm 144, 3-4, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, Habel. His days are like a passing shadow. And Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, Habel. That's the same word used in all of those. Well, the first 11 verses that I read make the first point, and that is accepting death is the first step in learning to live. Accepting death is the first step in learning to live. The preacher here wants us to know that life is short. We've all heard it, that time goes by, the quicker, quicker the older you get. At the same time, life is elusive, like smoke. You try to grasp it in your hands, it slips through your fingers. A question is asked in verse three, what does a man profit from his life of toil here on earth? And the answer given in verse four through 11, it's, it's like building a sandcastle. On the beach, the next day, it's washed away. It's forgotten. Notice also that there's a repetition of our life cycles. The winds just keep swirling around. The streams run to the sea, get evaporated, turn into rain that gathers into rivers and back to the sea. What has been is what will be. Humans long to invent something new, to get out of our routines, to break the repetitive cycles. Even in our, our inventions like digital media and screens, that shows us Wow, this is amazing kinds of communication, but that is also limiting our ability to become people of depth. Yet man for millennium 
has always been finding ways to communicate in all kinds of forms. The preacher in Ecclesiastes would say, yes, you might change things up a bit, but ultimately your invention, whatever it is, is also going to be forgotten. Just like all the other cycles of life, everyone will need to prepare to die. His term, under the sun, in verse 9, does not refer to a location, but rather to timing. It's now, or as long as the earth lasts. This side of eternity, life is a breath. We do the same thing over and over again in a world repeating itself over and over. Then we die, followed by our children who do the same thing over and over, and they too will die. This happens whether you're a Christian or not. Second point is that we create bubbles to live in our insulated, to insulate ourselves from reality. We create bubbles to insulate ourselves from reality. These could be pleasure, work, possessions, or even wisdom. Starting in chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, he makes this point. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under, the, under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He articulates all the things that he pursued, but he concludes in verse 14 of chapter 2, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happened to all of them. Every single person is going to have that same event, death. Continuing on, verse 16, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy our life. It's the gift of God, knowledge of his sovereignty that makes the vanity of this life enjoyable. But isn't the motive of man to always seek happiness? God never promises happiness anywhere in the Bible that I ever found. Even when a man hangs himself, even that is an act of selfishness trying to find happiness. Don't we instead create distractions and diversions to console ourselves, wanting to avoid the thought of death? But the wisest man, the president of the United States, the greatest of all time talk show host, and even the village idiot all end up in a box in the ground soon to be forgotten. The reality of death should inform the way we presently live. None of us are permanent. Nothing we do is permanent. We're all going to die. But verse 24 in chapter 2, the preacher here bursts that bubble. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This almost sounds nihilistic. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But instead, it's eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is in this life. God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own rewards. We should use these as a greater means to see the hand of God working in our own lives. We don't just work to earn a living, but to find satisfaction. And we can build a reputation. What if our work wasn't intended to make us successful, but instead was intended to make us faithful? make us generous? What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? Man has been wired by God to always try to fix things, to upgrade them. I hate to say it, 
but not everything in this world can be fixed. Since the fall in the garden, we've all been living in a fallen and a cursed world. Someday the curse will be reversed, and things will be again as they should be. The emphasis of verse 24 through 26 is that it is what God gives us. He is the one who regulates the enjoyment and satisfaction of our lives. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. We've all experienced that letdown after we finally achieve a goal that we had been desiring. A new car was going to make us content. It loses its luster after a year. That new iPhone, that's obsolete. Within three weeks now, a new one comes out. Getting the keys to your dream home, wonderful. But now I've got to take care of this place. When God gives us these pleasures, he actually will show us that the things or accomplishments in and of themselves leave us unsatisfied. It should instead give us perspective on ourselves. We must always remember that it is God who gives these things. For us Christians, imagine our lives without Christ. It will be pure, pure vanity. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes should be familiar to you. You hear it at funerals, even sometimes funerals of those who had no spiritual interest in their lives. It brings into perspective both the big picture of our lives as well as the individual seasons that we may go through. And this makes our third point. Our lack of control over things of this life is what can bring us hope. Lack of control over the things of life can bring us hope. These first first eight verses of chapter 3 share the rhythmic patterns, the vicissitudes of life. There's a time and a season for everything. This list of 14 of opposites covers the entirety of life from one extreme to the other. It covers from the moment of our birth to the moment of our death. Also notice that all of these opposites are intertwined in relationship. It's all about relationship. And God gives us a variety of seasons of life in which each of these actions will have different meanings and different contexts. I was first a son and a brother, then a lover and a husband, a student, a teacher, an employee, an employer, eventually a father, a father-in-law, a grandfather, and potentially a widower. These are all seasons God gives us, and he knows the boundaries of each, but especially the presence or absence of relationships that are in them. Any of these 28 activities might hit us at any time in any random order, even multiples at the same time. I can't simply schedule my 15 minutes of sorrow at 3 o'clock next Thursday. I wish I could. Okay, I get that out of the way. The point is that only God has control of the events and the relationships in our lives. But we can't stop at verse 8. Sitting in a funeral, staring at the cold body in a box, we might hear all of the wonderful deeds this person had done, what riches they may have gained. I remember as a teenager hearing John MacArthur preach that you never see a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. It just doesn't happen. This guy's dead. It's all over with. He has gained truly nothing. Starting in verse 9, we start to see some comfort. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. I perceived that whatever God does endure forever, nothing can be added to it, nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. David Gibson in Life, Living Life Backwards says, one of the ways we learn to live by preparing to die is by realizing that death means judgment, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that death means judgment. 
It gives my present actions meaning and weight. It gives my experienced losses and injustices a voice in God's presence. Even though these things are in the past, they're not forgotten by God, every single injustice will have its day in court. You think politics is rigged by one of the parties? God will deal with it. You think abortionists are getting rich off of taking the life of innocent babies? They will face a judge. We only have a very limited view of the big picture of God's divine sovereign will. Remember, he is a righteous judge. Consider your relationship with your children. You'll often give them instructions, and they don't understand when you tell them what to eat or what to wear, when to go to bed, what they're allowed to do. You control their freedoms because you have a bigger picture in mind. They don't know that bigger picture that you have in training them. How much more we, could sit, we should consider God's picture. He's not bound by time like we are. His plans in bringing events into our lives and our relationships are what's key. Trust is what we need to have here. Ecclesiastes tells us to learn now that the seasons or the season that I'm in right now will pass into a different season. It should help prepare me for the next chapters of my life that have yet to be written. We have to adjust our expectations of both the seasons of joy and of sorrow. We'll only be truly satisfied when we realize that we are time-bound creatures and God, our eternal creator, is not. Only God knows exactly where all the pieces go and how they all fit together and why. Our lack of control over the things of this life must be what brings us hope. Chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes again addresses relationships. It makes our fourth, fourth point that you need to regularly evaluate where you're going with your life. Regularly evaluate where you're going with your life. When you look back at your life, the riches gained, the status achieved, or the pleasures enjoyed, it will be useless compared to the true loving relationships. Starting in verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The book of James emphasizes this by warning against partiality, the tongue, faith without works, humility, judging your brother, meeting your brother's needs, and encouraging sinning brothers to repent. It's all about relationships. When we stop to think about serving our neighbors, it prevents two extremes, idle laziness and maniac busyness. Laziness is a way of hating our neighbors. G.K. Chesterton said there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more, and the other is to desire less. A lot easier. I sense that some of you are relationally starved with COVID. You love to serve others, but your engine was put in neutral when the government declared that we had to stay home and stay away from everybody else. Why do we let fear change our perspective of our future, of our death? Why should we not each day live for it as if it was our last? Not even three years ago, our sister Jane Mulligan left the evening service after sitting right there, and she was killed in a car crash right in front of our church. Can you state that you've quit living for this world and are ready to face death, having lived to serve others to the degree that God desires? Where are you going with your life? Are you pursuing your own fleshly desires through sin, 
Are you serving others, being Christ-like to them? You should regularly evaluate this. Chapter 5 and 6 ask us if we're truly undivided worshipers. Verse 1 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Like James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You cannot serve two masters. Are you going to play games with your faith all the way up to your death? God isn't looking for people to simply do the work of the ministry, to do good deeds. He wants their hearts. He wants us to truly fear him in a good sense, as verse 7 says, for when dreams increase and words may grow, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Rather than boasting, sinning with your words, the most important thing we can do is to fear God. And how do we do that? By hearing his word regularly. James also repeats this phrase, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Think through what you say and what you do. There will be an end to it all when you are accountable for every idle word. I love the last verse of chapter 5. Speaking of the faithful man who fears God and works diligently, it says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. That's where I want to be. Chapter 7 and 8 through the end of the book give us our sixth point. When I look forward to that day of death, what kind of person should I be? What kind of person should I be? You've been to funerals. You've heard the lies. About two years ago, I did my brother-in-law's funeral. He was an extremely worldly person who died in poverty, never really making anything of his life. He didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. So what was he praised for? He was great at working in the garden. He sure loved music. He sure could barbecue. It's always a hopelessness that the world offers. Verse 15 says it well. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. But do not over, be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither a fool. Don't be a theological snob, and don't be an escapist. You need to learn within the limitations of wisdom. The day of our death should be welcome in advance if we have recognized we cannot control everything in our life. Those tears on your pillow at night are real. We know that God knows about them, and he is the one that does have control. Pastor Steve often says that a coffin is a great preaching tool. Death brings the importance of things into focus. We're all faced with that question. When is it my turn? What kind of person should I be now to be ready for that day? What will they say about me? If you live, live a life in denial, what else is there in life but to eat, to drink, and party? Death invites us to be a person of depth. Ecclesiastes invites you to be real, that living a good life means to prepare to die a good death. Death should teach you the limitations of your life. It should reshape your goals, your attitudes, what you pray for, and what you long for. Tasting death up close and personal will truly change you. What kind of person should you be now? I think you kind of get the point of Ecclesiastes. Accepting death is the first step in learning to live. Recognize the bubbles we create to insulate ourselves from reality. Our lack of control over the things of life is what can bring us hope. Regularly evaluate where you're going with your life. 
ask yourself if you're truly an undivided worshiper, and from that, what kind of person you should be. So now that I've made my opening argument, let's get started with a message. No, just kidding. Turn back to James 4, 13. We're going to look at our passage in light of Ecclesiastes. James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Rather than today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profit, we need to accept death and recognize that we might die at any moment. James follows that up with, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. There's that word habel, even a mist or a bubble. And that's what we do. We create a bubble around us, thinking it's going to protect us. But this bubble is a mist. It's really all we are. We appear for a little while and we vanish away. Recognize the bubbles we create to insulate ourselves from reality. Back earlier in verse 14, it says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We don't have any control or what will happen to us tomorrow, but it's our lack of control over the things of life that can bring us hope, hope in Christ. Finishing verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Here we must regularly evaluate where we're going to live our lives. Are we going places and doing things that would be in accordance with God's will? That drives us to consider if we're truly undivided worshipers. James says, as it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. We should be as Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Truly undivided worshipers will boast in what Christ has done for them rather than any accomplishments of this world. Finishing off our passage with James 4.17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. What kind of person should you be? You should be a person who's regularly convicted of your sin. Anytime you're worshiping anything else, anytime you evaluate your life and you see it's not pursuing Christ, anytime you think you should have control over your life, you can't isolate yourself in a bubble to ignore reality. Because we need to accept the fact that we're all going to die and it should be a joy to us. Our sin will either damn us to hell or else it's going to be covered by Christ's atoning work on the cross. Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You t- heard tonight from a number of people who profess their faith in Christ through baptism. They haven't earned their salvation. They brought nothing with them to the cross. If you're to die tonight, do you have an assurance of your salvation that this entire world will simply be vanity, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes said? Christ died to pay our penalty for sin. That gives us a purpose to live as long as God gives us breath. When it's over, we want to joyfully face Christ in heaven as our Savior, not as our judge, because he already took care of that. What a joy. Our ultimate death is not hopeless because we know how the story ends. For my friend Wayne M.D., I know he loved the Lord. He deeply wanted to honor Christ in his life and his business. 
I started working for him when I was 16 years old. It was such a sobering shock when I received the call from his secretary who just found him lying dead, slumped over his desk in a pool of blood. To know that his brother gave him time to write letters was a sobering thought. If you had two minutes to write down something you, to someone who you deeply loved, what would you write? What would you want to tell them in that just couple minutes you had left? Would it reflect that you had lived your life with purpose for yourself or for Christ? Would you then be a mist that appears for a little while, and for a short time, and then vanishes away? I hope that makes you think about it. Steve, would you come up and close in prayer?